Um, yeah, thank you so much for that introduction and for having me. Um, I'll be reading three flash fiction pieces today. Um, and the first one is kind of a horror story, and now I'm like, oh no, we just ate. <laughs> so maybe this is not a good time <laughs> to get into a slightly gruesome story, but I'll do it anyway. Um, but yes, if you need to <laughs> leave, <laughs> feel free to. Um, but yeah, it's based on the fact that when I was in elementary school, my friends and I were really obsessed with that urban legend that there was a woman who found a finger in her bowl of chili at Wendy's. Um, and we were just like enthralled by that. Um, and we kind of endlessly spun stories about it. So this is inspired by that. It's called Finger. We hear on TV that if you find a finger in your bowl of chili at Wendy's, you can sue them and live on that money forever. We debate whose finger to sever, how we will split the money, but in the end, only one girl is willing. Gao Xiaotai, whose mother needs surgery to remove her spleen because it is hardening. What is the spleen, we ask Xiaotai, and she doesn't know either, can only make two fists and say this is inside her. We ask her which finger she wants to sacrifice, and she says her ring one, since she doesn't want to marry anyway. Her mother says men are worse than spleens because they can't be surgically removed from inside you. That's fine, we say, though we pity that finger, crying as we hold it down on our mother's cutting board and bring the cleaver down blunt. Though we tied a knot around her finger the night before, choking off the blood so it will turn dead and white as a radish, Xiao Tai still screams, and we are still sorry when the cleaver doesn't go all the way, just sort of lodges in the bone. And by the time we wrestle the blade up again, her bone flaking like snow, Xiao Tai is unconscious and her mother is awake, chasing us out. Her finger is only severed partway, and now it has an extra hinge in it. And though we think she looks way cooler this way, like those ghosts with hands as long as their arms that can eat a tree with one fist, her mother is upset because now Xiao Tai is unmarriageable. Xiao Tai says she has to drink a bag of pig's blood every day because of blood loss. And because we are sorry, we buy her jumbo bags at the Ranch 99 and watch her sip, her wrists bulging full, shattering her bracelets and scattering the beads we scramble to pluck off the street. We will find another thing to amputate, maybe a toe, because who needs those? Xiao Tai says she has an uncle without toes, and maybe we can ask him for advice. He must live in a house beneath his own acre of sky, rain whenever he wants it, the sun dinging like a concierge bell. But Xiao Tai says no, his uncle, her, this uncle lives in his Subaru. We tell her we don't believe that, but Xiao Tai brings us to the Burger King parking lot and asks him to show us his feet. It's true, he says, I lost my toes, but not inside a stew. During the war, I was sent to herd cattle in the country, and all the women said, remember to sleep with your feet buried in coal, and I forgot and my toes purpled like grapes and were plucked off clean by the cold. But I kept my teeth, he says, smiling, and they are turrets of gold. Every part of him is gilded, skin described by sweat, hands rubied with calluses. We tell him he should have kept all his toes in a baggie and tucked them in a cheeseburger, and then he'd be so rich his bones would be re-released in gold. And he laughs and says they burned his toes, converted them to coals. We ask if he has collected them back yet. No, he says, and asks us why we even want them. We say we are going to spoon them to our mouths and scream and sue, and then we will pay to evict Xiao Tai's mother's spleen, and we will buy pink houses that look like sliced cake, and holographic skirts, and a new Subaru that can go underwater like a submarine and resurface him anywhere he wants. He laughs again. He says, does a finger cost so much here? When I was little, he says, little girls didn't roam the streets looking for cold toes, didn't hijack knives either. What do they do then, we ask, 
and he says they used to fly kites. Kites with faces on them to scare ghosts away. Kites with our faces. Back then, he tells us, he had a sister just like us, except one time she got her kite tangled in a power line, and when she tried to tug it down, she got electrocuted. They tried to take her home, but no one could touch her without snagging themselves in her light. And by the time she stopped shaking, she was dead. We had to carry her home without touching her, muffled in wool, he says. How much money did you get, we ask, for her whole body like that? We think it must be a lot, but he turns away from us, putting his hands on the wheel even though we are going nowhere. Nothing, he says, nothing. That's when Xiao Cai gets the idea to dig up a dead body and steal the fingers off that. In this way, none of our blood has to be replaced with the pigs. We agree, and all week we dig beneath power lines for electrocuted girls, but we only find soda cans, pigeon bones, gravel. Xiao Cai's mother's belly turns green because the spleen is now a honeydew melon. And though Xiao Cai begs us to finish severing her finger, we see the way it hinges, knuckling like a tree beneath another country's wind and we cannot fell it. Xiao Cai's uncle follows us in his car as we walk to Ranch 99 for blood, as we plot which bodies to rob, always our own. He scrolls down his window. His car stalls behind us, shuddering still, and the window breathes steam. Freeze, he says. You'll freeze. He runs out toward us, kneeling, taking each of our feet one at a time and cupping them in his palms, buttering us in his breath. And we ask him to go back in the car. Aren't you cold out here? Don't spend all your blood on us. But he kneels, holding our feet to his lips like a microphone, saying again and again, someday you will be worth more than this. You will be worth more than what you've lost. That's the end of the story. <laughs> um, and the next story, um, it's kind of a sci-fi story, which is a genre that I'm like not usually comfortable in. Um, but I was just like looking at this billboard one day, and I misread it. And I find that oftentimes when I misread things, the misreading is more interesting <laughs> than what the, the actual words are on the billboard. And um, so that's inspired by that. Um, it's called Deal. Deal of the decade, the billboard said. So I called the number listed along its lip. The woman on the billboard looked like my mother, nothing in her hands, a dimple deflating her left cheek, a bracelet of crows circling her wrists. When I was little and she was asleep, I wedged pennies into those dimples, sometimes dead beetles or my own fingertips, pretending I had invented her dents. I asked her why I had none, and she said I would develop a dimple of my own only after I gave birth. She got hers when she bit the inside of her cheek while birthing me, her mouth caving into my name. When I called the billboard's number, I was driving on the highway toward the cemetery. A woman answered, Wei? I asked what she meant by the deal of the decade. It was unclear what the billboard advertised. The woman was captured only, captioned only by a phone number. It reminded me of that game my mother and I used to play, Guess What They're Selling. For example, this commercial. A road glazed with galloping horses, tugging a stagecoach with a child inside. It's selling the horse, I said, and she said, it's selling the child. Half the commercials were for something called insurance, and my mother said she had never heard of so many kinds of accidents. Fires, earthquakes, lost dogs. Years later, I tried explaining to her. The commercial is asking for a down payment on loss. You assume you'll die, or your house will burn down, or your dog will disassemble beneath the car. So you pay the company until slash if it happens, and then someday they'll return what you risked. She shook her head and said, people should just accept.
Back in my hometown, she said, when your house was hassled by a storm, the wind didn't blow money back to you. When someone died, you were owed nothing but smoke. On the phone, the woman responded to me, we are a service. We collect your unused years and refurbish them for future use. Unused years, I repeated. Yes, she said, the bad ones, the wasted ones, the ones you spent drunk or in bed, years you grieved or spent on sadness. Anything counts, she told me, like years one through three. Who remembers those? But I remembered those years, my mother rinsing me in a plastic tub, the vinegar of my skin, how she filled our house like a fire. I wanted years one through three to remain in my memory. I didn't want them wiped blank as bones and returned new to me. Imagine knowing you have an extra decade in the bank, the woman said. It all begins with 149.99. My mother always said, anyone that tells you to spend is a scammer. But I still dialed numbers just to listen to the ringing. The first language I learned was, call now. Call now to claim your very own. At the end of every commercial, my mother picked up her wrist and dialed it. I pressed my palm to my ear, answering. Are you calling to claim me? I said, and she laughed. Yes, but only if you come with a sibling, another same as you. When I didn't respond, the woman on the phone said I could call back, but her mouth snapped shut like a coin purse, counting me a loss. I want to ask you one more thing, I said. The woman on the billboard, I said, where did you find her? I thought maybe I'd get a name, that face, that dimple with the depth of a nest, where I burrowed the bird of my thumb. But there was only silence, so I pulled out of the gas station and merged back onto the highway. By the time I arrived at the cemetery, the sky was the color of a bruised forehead. I crossed the lot and walked with my phone pressed to my ear, wondering if I should call the woman back and ask her whether it was possible to erase an absence. When my mother first told me she was sick, I was six cities away. She told me not to be worried, that all those commercials lied. Dying costs nothing. I know you're lying, I said. And she laughed and said, at least when she was dead, I might come visit her more often. Don't joke like that, I said, remembering years one through three, when I fell asleep on her lap in front of the TV, how we were the only ones who only watched the commercials, the things in between, the light throbbing like a loose tooth, how sometimes I still answer the phone with, are you calling to claim me? The urn squatted on a marble shelf, perforated with bird poop. Instead of her name on the urn, I'd wanted her dimple engraved, the first name I knew her by, but I couldn't remember its shape or length, only the shadow that filled it. My phone hummed, and when I picked up, the woman on the other end was begging me for a year, any year I'd lost to something, pneumonia maybe, or an accident that left me bedridden, something small to invest, maybe a handful of lost days like loose change. This time it was me who hung up. There was nothing I wanted to give her, no years I hadn't used, even the ones I spent ignoring my mother's calls, the ones I spent learning symptoms from commercials, migraines, insomnia, frequent vomiting, my mother asleep as I mopped sweat from her dimple. Accept it, she said, when a house burned down on TV, when a girl jumped onto the highway. Accept that you will recover nothing. Ring, ring, I said to my hand. I will always choose my time with you, I said to my wrist. I drove with one palm pressed to my ear, listening to my hand the whole way home, her blood voicing my veins. Thank you. That's the second one. And I'll read one last story. Okay, now we have options. <laughs> um, I can either read something that's unpublished, because both of these stories were published, um, that's unpublished, that is still kind of like work in progress. 
Um, or I can read something that also is narrated by a chorus of feral girls. <laughs> Anyone have any <laughs> preferences? I'd like to sh shout out one or two. Unpublished. Unpublished? Okay. Oh, no. <laughs> I was like, I, th I thought I had a guaranteed crowd pleaser with that first one. Okay. Um, okay. I'm reading this from my email, so it might be a little shaky. Um, oh, this is inspired by the fact that I, um, there's a laundromat in this strip mall near where I live um, called Life Cycles. And I was like, ooh, clever, cycles, life cycles, very nice. Um, and I was like, wow, what if you could actually reincarnate yourself by putting yourself in a washing machine? Wouldn't that be cool? Um, so that's where that came from. Thank you, strip mall. Um, life Cycles. With the paycheck from her new job, my mother buys a washing machine. She straps the box to the top of her car and escorts it home like royalty. But Ama refuses to use it, says the machine wastes water. In truth, she wants to keep going to the 24-hour laundromat on her street, the one with windows so big and clear, everything inside is whitened by the soap of sunlight. It's where you go to be reborn. After slotting your quarters into the machine, you choose your cycle and crawl inside. There's the delicate cycle for souls that are easily torn and must be massaged into their new forms. The power wash cycle for those whose sins are particularly stubborn stains. And the quick wash, which swallows all the rest of us. My mother says we're, sh we're strapped to a cosmic wheel and you can't just press a start button and expect to escape suffering. But Ama takes me on Sundays and we run through the aisles laughing, flinging open the doors to every machine, witnessing rebirth. A crow gushing out like ink, a doe climbing out on wobbly legs, an octopus blended into jelly. Ama never launders her own life. Only our clothes go into the machine, never our bodies. It's better to accept your little in life, she says. I correct her. You mean your lot in life. One time, I yank open a door and a slug slithers out. Ama whispers to me that it's Ling Ai, who's already on her 1,873rd life. She sold her house and her car and her kidneys just to fund her reincarnations. Now she lives in a metallic palace of coins, and every day she feeds a fistful to the machine and stuffs herself inside. So far, she's crawled out as every species of reptile, a battered bride, and a giraffe thigh. The rest of the body got stuck inside. Still, she's unsatisfied. Last week, when she was a golden-crowned sparrow, the closest that woman will ever get to royalty, Ama says. Ling Ai fluttered to the laundromat with quarters in her beak, so eager to reincarnate that she slammed into the window and had to be revived by pedestrians. Ama shakes her head and says that some women are so terrified of repeating the same life, they'll run to anything else. Our family is the same way. My mother says she'll kill herself before becoming an aging burden like Ama, and Ama says she'll grow nice and old instead of jumping off a building like her mother did. Both of them worry I will copy their crimes, adding to the debts we've accrued in our past lives. The cousin kidnapped by her husband, the country that flooded, the aunt with the bean in her breast. Every tragedy is currency, a down payment on our bodies, and the job of a daughter is to be the one responsible. I asked my mother if I can quit this job, and she says to stop going to the laundromat. It's a gutter of guilt. But at night, when I see her kneeling in front of the shrine, I know she believes we've committed horrors before we were born. Because we'll never pay back our days, we have no exit. Instead of emerging into air, we paddle in the opposite direction, burying ourselves deeper inside our mothers. 
We grow into them like clothes, wearing all we owe. I imagine my mother inside a washing machine, trapped behind glass, churned in circles until her face erases itself like a stain. The next morning, I find out why she's been praying. In the kitchen, she tells Ama that she got fired. She's going to have to return the washing machine, and we better pray it's not too late. It's always too late, Ama says. That day, I walk to the laundromat alone. In the doorway is a little bird with blue-gray wings, a coin in its beak like a newly minted moon. Its wings were blurring into a bruise. It's Ling Ai begging me to kill her now, to swat her down like a fly. She says, nearly 2,000 re reincarnation cycles, and I end up a damn barn swallow. What's wrong with being a barn swallow, I ask. Don't you know, she says, barn swallows only have a 5% survival rate in the first year of their lives. Starvation and predators. Adulthood is improbable. What I really wanted, Ling Ai says, is to be a protected species. One of those animals on a special list that says, you cannot hunt, eat, or capture these. They are precious. They are few. But barn swallows are everywhere, so ordinary. At dusk, when I was a human, they swarmed the tree in my backyard, dicing the air as nimbly as knives, chasing tiny insects only they could see. And though they were graceful, all I saw were their ghosts, the 95% who hadn't survived, the ones who should have been, the inheritors of our air, every tree earning a crown of their bodies. I hold out my empty hands and Ling Ai flits into my palms. I cup her to my chest and walk up to a machine. When the door swings open, I climb in. Ling Ai's wings beat against my breast, and as the drum floods with water, I feel her heart slowing, sinking with mine. We shut our eyes. We feel the water rise and rasp in our throat. Outside, I hear Ama's voice calling to us, her hands outstretched to receive our body clean. Ling Ai's soul makes a nest in my chest, and the cyclone of water swallows us together. We batter the glass until it cracks. I expand, my arms branching out like a tree's, puncturing the walls of the drum, lancing it with leaks. Soon the water will lash out of the holes, emptying the machine. In the depths of my chest, Ling Ai repeats, soon, soon, this cycle is ending. Thank you.